Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And uh, if you have the Version Bible app on your phone, you can follow along on there as well uh, this morning. Uh, if you open uh, the Version Bible app and on the bottom where it says more, you click on events and Cornerstone Community Church, Nowata should be the first one that pops up. If it's not, you can search for it or you might have to change your location settings, but you can follow along uh, with the text and the outline and everything on version. And uh, while you're getting to Exodus chapter 20, uh, over the last several weeks, we have been going through the book of Exodus, and uh, last week we found ourselves in a position of change for the Israelites. You see, these Israelites, for 400 years, they've been in slavery and bondage and suffering, and we've seen now that God has brought his people out of Egypt, out of the, the hands of these people who had them in slavery, into uh, this new life. They were no longer there. Now they are uh, taking their steps, making their way into this promised land of Canaan that God said, I'm going to take you out of Egypt and I'm going to take you into the promised land. And so now he's working on that promised land part. And you would think after everything that God has done, right, like everything that God has done for his people, bringing them out of the hands of the Egyptians through these powerful displays, the plagues, and, you know, taking them through the Red Sea on dry ground, you would think that the people would say, okay, no matter what our circumstances, no matter our situations, no matter the trials that we're going to be facing in this life, we're good. God's got this. I mean, God has already done all of these amazing things. All we have to do is just trust him, lean on him, rely on him. We know that he can do these things. You would think that's what they would do, but is that what they do? No. No, it is not. They grumble and they complain. Our water is bitter. We used to have food in Egypt and we don't have any food here. Uh, we don't have any water. It was just grumbling and complaining over and over and over again. But what does God do? He provides right? Like he takes the water that is bitter and makes it good for drinking. He gives them quail and manna every day to make sure they have food. The only day they don't have it is on that day of rest, but even then he tells them, prepare enough so that you will be good on that day. They have the things that they need. And it's a reminder to us, right, to trust God. To trust God in each and every circumstance, each and every trial, each and, every, each and everything we go through. Because we have seen in our lives how God has been there for us in so many things, how God has taken us through trials and into something better. We have seen these things, and we need to trust. We need to obey him. We need to trust him in the battles of life. We always need to lean on him. And it seems like so far as we've gone through Exodus, it's been one big, important moment in history each and every time. And this morning, that continues we come to a text that we're very familiar with, most of us. We've, we've spent a lot of time reading this text. We've read about uh, what we're going to look at this morning, and it's, we've read about it since we were in uh, children's church and vacation Bible school and all these things. We know this. And a matter of fact, if I were to say what we're talking about this morning, most people, there's a lot of people who don't even go to church who would be able to tell you what this is. These Ten Commandments. These Ten Commandments that were so important to the people 
of Israel, the Ten Commandments, or also known as the Ten Words, or the Decalogue. These were essentially a summary of the 613 commandments that were contained in the Old Testament law, and we've seen these on display in so many different mediums, right? Like in, on TV, in movies, we've seen these, this moment displayed, and we've seen it in powerful and bold ways in media, but then we've even seen it done in a little bit of a comedic way. Mel Brooks, the great comedian and uh, comedic actor, producer, director, he even gave his take on the Ten Commandments. And if you've never seen it, well, then I would encourage you to look up here at the screen. Lord, I shall give these laws unto thy people. Hear me! Oh, hear me! All pay heed! The Lord, the Lord Jehovah, has given unto you these 15... Wait. Ten... Ten Commandments for all to obey. Now, I don't know if uh, Mel Brooks actually really went into depth on in reading this uh, section of Scripture. But you see, these commandments, they're important. They were important to the people of Israel. This help, this uh, guide to how to live, how you are to approach your relationship with God, how you're to approach your relationship with others. And the thing is, I believe it is still relevant to us. It's relevant to us. And so there's a lot here. And so instead of talking about all 10 this morning, we're going to just look at the first four today and the rest next week. And so we're going to start in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 20. And this is what it says. It says, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So before God gives these ten words, he's going to remind the people of who he is. He's the God who brought the people out of the hands of the Egyptians. After spending 400, 430 years in Egypt, they were in captivity for 400. But after the plagues of Egypt, after the exodus, after going through the Red Sea on dry ground, he brought them out of this. He is that same God. He's letting them know, I am the Lord, your God. I'm the one who did this. I'm the one who brought you out. I'm the one who brought on these plagues. I am the one who brought you through dry ground. I am that God. I am that God. And so he's going to give now these commands. In verse 3, it says this, You shall have no other gods before me. And so here we find our first command, No other God but the Lord our God. We are to have no other God but the Lord our God. And everything starts with this. This is the center of everything. All these other commands, they all start here, at this, at the very center, at the very core. God tells the Israelites, you have one true God, and you are to worship him and serve him only. God tells them, it's me. I am the one true God. All your worship, your service, all of these things should be directed at me and not any of these other false gods. And he says, you're to have no other God before me. This phrase, before me, it could mean in opposition to me as well as in my presence. And he's telling the people, if you worship these false gods, all you're doing is you're setting them up to oppose me or to be in my presence, and that is not acceptable. 
Matter of fact, Scripture tells us that they were told not even to mention the names of other gods. Don't even let the name of other gods be on your lips. Exodus 23, 13. Be careful to do everything I have said to you. Do not invoke the names of other gods. Do not let them be heard on your lips. Matter of fact, in other spots in the Pentateuch, we see that to worship another god, to worship a false god, could, also, or could bring death. Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 5, it tells us, while Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to be the sacrifices to their gods. Invited them to the sacrifices, not to be the sacrifices of their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of these people, kill them, and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must put to death those of your people who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. And we, knew, we know that the Israelites have every reason to worship the Lord, their God, right? Because of everything that he's done. Everything that he's done. We've already recapped it a few times this morning, but it stands to reason that after everything that he has done over and over and over again for his people, they should have every reason to put their faith and trust in him alone, especially considering what happened with the plagues because the plagues showed just how weak Egypt's false gods were. But for the Israelites, this would be a struggle that they continued with over and over and over again, worshiping other gods. Matter of fact, they struggled with two gods in particularly, Baal and Asherah. And they struggled with these two for what seemed some very dominant reasons, one being the sexual nature behind these false gods. Ritual prostitution was common with these gods. The other big reason is that they fell into the culture around them, and as they did that, they started to follow the, the practices, the customs of these cultures. It was something that God had warned them about and something that would continue to get them in trouble. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 23, it says, you must not live according to the customs of these nations I am going to drive out before you, because they did all these things I abhorred them. 2 Kings 17, 15, they rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their ancestors and the statutes he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. Man, I think there's a great reminder in there, isn't there, about what happens when we decide to follow the culture instead of follow the word? The more that we decide to follow the culture, the more we put ourselves in the presence of this world and do the things that the world tells us we should, the more we start to look like them, the more we start to act like them. And what happens? We get lost in the world. And here's the thing. This idea of there being one God, it continues in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 8.6, yet for us there is but one God. The Father, from whom all things came and from whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. And here's the thing that we need to remember this morning. This still stands 
for us. There is no other God but the one true God, and he deserves our worship. He deserves our praise, our adoration. He deserves our service to him. But the truth is this. There are so many other gods that we give all those things to. Is there not? Think about it. There are all these other things that have become gods in our lives, and we give them our time, our effort, our sacrifices often. And you might be thinking, well, what are those gods? What are those gods that we give our our time, our attention, our focus to? What about the god of materialism? The god of materialism, we want, 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 right? Like we see something and we want something. Like we, we see all these commercials that cater to us, that market to us. We want, want, want. What about power? Oh, we crave that, don't we? Power, we crave that desire to be in charge or in control. That's what we want, right? Like we want to be able to control all the situations around us. We want to be in charge. We want people to know who we are. What about the God of lust? Sexual, material lust, it's so common. Oh, here's a tough one. What about the God of self? Sometimes we worship ourselves, don't we? I'm the best. I can do no wrong. I am the best at this, and there's nobody else like me. Sometimes we worship the God of self, and we give these things all of our time, our efforts, in a lot of cases, our money and our resources. You see, there's one God. There are no other God. There is no God like our God. Are we worshiping him, serving him, giving him praise, adoration, Or do we give all of our time, effort, sacrifice to something that will only keep us away from him? We continue on. Verse 4 says this, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth, beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And so here's this next command that we are given, and it is this, do not worship idols. Do not worship idols. You see, in Egypt and Canaan, various gods were depicted in various human and animal forms, but the God of Israel, he's not a material God. Rather, The God of Israel is spiritual. Jesus reiterates this in John chapter 4, verse 24, when he says God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. And therefore, for anyone to try to create a physical idol, the word here for idol being pestle, and it means carved image, and it comes from the word apostle, which means to carve or to cut, To do that, to take, to cut up, to carve, to create an image and to worship that, to try to create a physical idol to give our worship to, would create a distorted image of who God actually is and who he truly is. And this is important because when we look back at Jesus' words in John 4, he says people are to worship him in spirit and in truth, and therefore to worship a distorted image in carved form would not be to worship him. And we're told that we're not to bow down or to worship, to the, or worship these images because God is a jealous God. He's a jealous God. He doesn't want us doing this. He wants our attention, our focus, our desire. That is what he wants from us. And really, it's, he's worth that. 
again, for everything he's done. He is worth all of our attention, our effort, our focus, our desire, our worship, all of those things. This is repeated in Scripture. Exodus 34, 14, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, it says, Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you, for the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Joshua 24, 19 through 20, Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. And I think it's important to note what is said next in our text, this idea of a generational curse that is passed down from generation to generation because of a flawed or broken understanding of who God is. And I will tell you, parents, fathers, mothers, in this room this morning, I always say it is important that you teach your kids the truth of the gospel, the true gospel message. Pass it on to your family. And not only pass it on to your family, not only teach it, but live it out. Because you see, it's one thing to teach it, but it's another thing to actually live it out in front of your kids. I mean, it's a good question. Do your kids hear and see you read scripture, pray, serving others? This is important because this text tells us that there are those who are that those who are loyal to God, who worship Him and follow His commands, will be blessed for generations. It's the opposite. And here's the thing: again, this, like the last commandment, continues in the New Testament, Acts chapter seventeen, verse twenty-nine. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Romans 1, 22 and 23, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, your children, keep yourselves from idols. And yet, just like the last one, we struggle with this, just as they would struggle with this. We struggle with idol worship more than we know, more than maybe we would care to admit. Because really, technically, idols are essentially something or someone that becomes more important to us than God. They replace our worship to Him. And what are those things? What are the idols today that we worship? What about the idol of sex? The porn industry, all the money that is generated by the porn industry, it's amazing just how much is going on there. What about money or other materials? We worship the things that we have. Technology, we worship technology and all the things that it can do. We worship our careers. We become obsessed with them. They get, our careers get all of our attention. What about fame? Oh, man, we want to be known. We want people to know who we are and to recognize us, and we crave it. Oh, what about influence? That's a word that's used a lot today, isn't it? Influence, social influencers. I'm an influencer. That's what I do. I'm an influencer. And we worship these things. And the thing is, we bow down to these idols because we think that they're going to bring us pleasure and joy. But the thing is, 
The enemy takes these things that could be a gift from God and distorts them, and these things lie to us and leave us without the pleasure that we seek. Kyle Eidelman, in his book, Gods of War, says it like this, when something good becomes a god, the pleasure it brings dies in the process. Pleasure has this unique trait. The more intensely you chase it, the less likely you are to catch it. And there's truth to that, isn't there? The more we chase after these things, the more we worship these idols, the more that we desire the pleasure that we think that they will bring, the more we chase after these things, when we finally get it, it leaves us lacking. It leaves us feeling like this was what I was chasing and we want more because now that's not enough for us. And so what we need to do is we need to guard our hearts and make sure that we are not letting these things become idols in our life that gets all of our attention, all of our worship, all of our desire, all of our passion. And we continue on in verse 7. It says this. It says, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now, a lot of, well, before we get there, first, this is our next commandment that we see here. Do not misuse the name of the Lord. Do not misuse the name of the Lord. And a lot of translations, maybe some of the translations you're using this morning, uses the word vain. Uses the word vain. And, you know, we've heard this said and oftentimes asked, what does this mean? Don't take the Lord's name in vain. We hear that, right? We hear that a lot. Don't misuse the Lord's name. Don't use his name in vain. Maybe when you were growing up, the way you always heard that referred to is, if you're going to say a curse word, you better not have his name in front of it, right? Like, that's what we think of when we think of using the Lord's name in vain. And we shouldn't do that. That is true. But it's so much more than that. You see, the word vain, it means to be empty or worthless. And I think the core thing in this, uh, any use of God's name that dishonors him or his character is using his name in vain. And in Scripture, we see different examples of what this means, actually. It can mean the, using his name in a frivolous or insincere purpose. An example being an oath with no intention of keeping it. Leviticus 19.12, it says, Do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. It can mean to use his name for a selfish purpose or misuse his name. Psalm 139.20, they speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. But I think for so many of us today, this idea of using the Lord's name in vain, misusing the name's Lord, it has this idea of religious lip service. And what I mean by that, it's I, I claim the name of Jesus, I say the name of Jesus, I talk about the name of Jesus, and yet that's all it is, is religious lip service. I'm not actually doing the things that God calls me to do. I continue to do the things that I want to do, but I say that I believe in Jesus. How many of us do that? We use his name a lot, but yet we actually don't live for him. Jesus actually talks about this. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Luke six forty six. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Sound familiar? 
We do these things often, don't we? We claim his name, yet we do not live it out. We do not follow his commands, and we do not bring any honor to his name. A matter of fact, when we say that we believe in Jesus and we use the name of Jesus and we don't live out his commands, we don't do what he asks us to do, we continue to live a life that we know is not bringing, him, uh, bringing his name out there, do you know what's happening? Our life is being empty and worthless. We are making his name empty and worthless. And therefore, we need to remember the importance of his name. His name is majestic. His name is holy. His name is awesome. Psalm 8.1, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 111.9, he provided redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. And everything that makes him who he is is in his name. He's Elohim, Yahweh, Abba, and so many other names. And we cannot misuse or take his name in vain. If we're going to use the name of Jesus, if we're going to use God's name, we need to actually follow through and live it out and live for him. Verse 8 says this, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so the people are to take the seventh day, set it apart from the other six and make it a day of worship, a day of service to the Lord. This finds its roots all the way back in Genesis 2 during uh, the end of the creation account in Genesis 2, 2 through 3. It says, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Scripture tells us that this Sabbath was important because it was a sign of covenant between God and his people. Exodus 31, 12 through 13, Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, You must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come, so you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. So important was it for the people to keep the Sabbath holy and separate that Scripture tells us the death penalty was at play. If you didn't, Exodus 31, 15, for six days work is to be done, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day is to be put to death. Numbers 15, 32 through 36, while the Israelites were in the wilderness, a man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly, and they kept him in custody because it was clear, it was not clear what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, the man must die. The whole assembly must stone him outside the camp. So the assembly took him outside the camp and stoned him to death as the Lord, God, or as the Lord commanded Moses. And I don't know about you, I'm reading that, I'm thinking, I just take the day, right? Like, why go and work and get stoned? I mean, everybody wants a day of rest, right? But we do see this shift a bit in the New Testament. 
While we see the Sabbath mentioned in the New Testament to reference to the people of Israel and not to the church, especially in the book of Acts, where when we see the Sabbath mentioned, it's often regards, or in regards to Jewish evangelism. It says the church worshipped on the Lord's Day, which was the first day of the week, which would be Sunday. The Sabbath was considered Saturday. Sunday was the beginning of the week. Acts 27, it tells us on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. I know sometimes I get a little long-winded, but can you imagine? You see, Scripture also tells us and lets us know that for the Christian, in regards to the law, the Sabbath is no longer a requirement in terms of, you know, the death penalty. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 tells us, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. And Paul tells us in Romans 14, 5, that one person considers one day more sacred than other, another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. But here's something I don't want us to confuse this morning. I don't think what Paul is saying here is an excuse for us to not meet together. I don't think what Paul is saying, hey, you don't have to worry about meeting together. You know, you don't have to worry about that. It's not required by law. No, I think what he's telling them is what day you worship is not as important as who in being together, who you worship in being together. That is what's important. The author of Hebrews says it this way. When talking about persevering in the faith in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Keep meeting together, building one another up, lifting one another up, encouraging one another, keeping one another accountable. That's why we need each other. That's why we meet together to worship together to love on each other, to encourage, to build one another up in the Lord. And this was something that the early church did often. Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And I think this is so important. I think it's important because of Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen: As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another we are not called to walk this faith alone. We are called to walk it together. We need each other. We need each other to build one another up, to encourage, to keep each other accountable. We need to be together. That's what we need to do. And I've heard it said, I don't need the church to be a Christian. I can stay at home and, and read my Bible from time to time. I don't need to meet in other people's homes. I don't need to meet with other believers. I don't need to do that to be a Christian. Man, when we have that attitude, I think we hurt ourselves and we hurt our brothers and sisters around us because we need each other. We're fooling ourselves if we believe that we can do everything on our own. And so we need to think about how 
do we worship? Do we keep the Lord's day? Do we make sure that we set aside that time each week to worship with one another, to worship him together? You see, these first four commandments, they deal with our relationship with God and how we're to respond to God. And I think it's important because God is worth all of these things. He is worth giving our allegiance, our faith, our worship, our praise, our adoration. He is worth all of these things. He's better than any idol. He is worthy of the things that we say that bring him honor and glory. And really, every single day should be a day of worship towards him and everything that we say and do. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And as they make their way up here, the thing is this. We know the truth this morning. Deep down in our hearts, in our souls, we know the truth very well. We look at these commands and we know, thinking about them, we cannot live up to them. Right? Like, we cannot live up to these commandments. We cannot live up to these truths because we know that in our sinful nature, we cannot live up to the standard that God has set. We can't do it. Romans 3.23 reminds us we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even reading through these first four commandments, how often do we stumble and fall in regards to these? We give our allegiance to other gods, to idols. We fall short and we're never going to meet his standard. But here's the thing. This just gives us another reason to give all those things previously mentioned to God. Because even in our brokenness, even in our sin, instead of getting the death that we so deserve, God sent us his son. He sent us his son. He sent us his son as a sacrifice, as a a sin offering for us. Romans 6.23, it reminds us, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so this morning, we can give our lives to him. We can choose to worship him alone. We can get rid of the idols and the things in our life that are causing us to take our focus and our attention off of him. We can give our lives to our great father. And it's what a great day. It's Father's Day. And we think about all the things that our fathers do, have done for us and continue to do for us. And we can think of our Heavenly Father who gave us the greatest gift we, could ever, we couldn't even imagine, sending His Son for us. And so maybe you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Him. You've never accepted Him as Lord and Savior. On the connect cards in the chairs around you, you could write that down and I'd love to talk with you. Or this morning, you could come up and talk with me. I'd love to talk with you. Or maybe you're here this morning and the things of this world have made you weary. You've started to sway in your faith. You've started finding yourselves falling at the idols of things of this world. You've started to notice your time, your affection, your, your attention is going to other things in this world. And maybe what you need to do this morning is just reconnect with your Heavenly Father. And the seats that you're sitting in, you could leave those things at his feet. You can pray and you can leave those things at his feet. You can come up here. I'd love to pray with you. There's others here that would love to pray with you. Man, our God is so good. He's worthy of being the only God in our life. There are no other gods that can do what he can do. There is no other God like him. The things of this world, the idols that we give our attention to, the things that we give our time to, they they don't compare 
They leave us lacking, they leave us empty, and they leave us craving more. But man, God can satisfy our soul. And so if you're here this morning and you have a decision to make, I pray that you do so. We're going to stand and we're going to sing.